I guess the question is, are NFTs really just a vehicle for flipping? In any investment class, there are always investors of all sorts of time frames, right? Even if you look at the bluest of blue chip stocks, right? Which is an investment class everyone is is aware of. You have people playing intraday sort of day trading. And then you'll have people who basically buy and never sell. And so it doesn't matter what investment class you have, you'll have people of all sorts of timeframes sort of in that investment class. And NFTs is no different. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of The Floor is Rising here with Sabretooth and Kizu. And special guest today, Helmi. Yusuf Helmi is a journalist from the Business Times in Singapore, and he is writing an article about investment and NFTs. And as part of the article, Kizu and myself are being interviewed. And I thought it would be very nice to actually record this interview so that it can come out in conjunction with the article. Welcome to the show, Helmi. Thank you for having me here. I'm writing a story about how one picks investment-worthy NFTs. I write for the Business Times. So of course, we're always interested in the financial aspect of things. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to this interview. I don't think I've ever interviewed anyone on a podcast before. And I, as far as I understand it, usually the hosts of the podcast are doing the, asking the questions, but hey, whatever, right? <laughs> it's, All good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, great. So I'll just jump right straight into it. How does one pick investment-worthy NFTs? And what are some of the characteristics that one looks for if, say, one plans to keep it for a long time or one plans to just flip it within weeks. Because NFTs is such a new sort of investment category, there is no general agreement about <laughs> what is an investment worthy NFT. There are huge portions of the population that disagree that there are any investment worthy NFTs, that everything is basically a bubble or a scam. Um, I think that's a huge part of the population. Myself, how I look at investment worthy NFTs is, is basically longevity. So it's very tough to call something investment worthy if if it is only like a month or two old or even under a year old, um, because it just hasn't stood the test of time. The general NFT space is part of the cryptocurrency space. And the cryptocurrency space is extremely reflexive in price. Um, you know, during sort of bull runs, the price goes up sky high. During bear markets, it tends to drop really, really low. And it's really tough to cause something investment worthy in the sort of investment sense if something has not been through kind of multiple bull or bear markets, right? Where it has kind of stood the test of time. Now, because the NFT space is so new, there are very, very few NFTs that have actually been through sort of multiple bear and, and bull markets. So when I look at picking sort of investment worthy NFTs, that is kind of the primary criteria, you know, things that have sort of been through um, just in terms of longevity of your time. The other factor that I look at is basically if something has a historical significance, right? So if you look at in other categories, um, in other sort of cultural factors, things that are usually sort of investment grade worthy are things that are sort of culturally significant or has had some kind of historical significance. Given that we're in the early stages of sort of NFTs, it's hard to try to pinpoint whether something is historically significant or not. I'll give you a, 
uh, an example. So an example would be from the start of NFTs, as most people know them, which is around 2017. And there were two projects that were launched in 2017. One was called CryptoPunks and one was called CryptoKitties. Now, at the time in 2017 that these two projects launched, CryptoPunks had a nice little bump. There was some press about it came out, but it didn't take that much notice in 2017. Whereas when CryptoPunks launched, it was like the biggest thing in the world. Essentially, it broke Ethereum. Tens of thousands and, and up to hundreds of thousands of people were, were buying it, breeding it. It dominated the news at that time. And you know, if you asked at that time which project was more historically significant, I would say 99 people out of 100 would have told you it was CryptoKitties that was more significant. Mm-hmm. But fast forward to today to 2022, I think you'll find very few people talking about CryptoKitties anymore. Its influence in the space has kind of waned. There hasn't been, you know, a lot of sort of progenitors of of that project of that game and the price of those NFTs has also lagged somewhat. CryptoPunks on the other hand, when it launched, it had absolutely no hype at all. Um it basically went through, you know, 3 plus years of relative obscurity, but you know, if you look at what's happening in an NFT space today with multiple PFP projects, multiple 10K projects launching every single day, you could say that essentially <laughs> the majority of the PFP market is a derivative of the original sort of CryptoPunk. So its, it's historical significance has grown massively, basically, up to this point. So, you know, I, I use those that sort of example as an example of it's not immediately obvious what is, what is historically significant even after something kind of has launched and only the test of time I can sort of pick this out now that's kind of my own personal experience now I would say you know how other people view it a lot of people basically look at you know who's got the biggest social media followings right um, so if they look at who's launching projects they check how many Twitter followers someone has how many Instagram followers someone has and then they sort of think that if someone has a has a bigger social media following that that is more investment worthy they look at for example the celebrity status of a particular person who's putting out NFTs so you know if someone ha- is a is a big celebrity has a lot of sort of mainstream media attention they also use that as a as a way to you know, pick what's investment worthy. Me personally, I, I don't think they're very good indicators of what's investment worthy, but a lot of other people do, which is why you will see that whenever sort of these celebrities launch NFTs, that there will be a lot of hype and buzz around the launch. And a lot of people, you know, take advantage of that hype and buzz to you know flip those NFTs very, very quickly. I think that's kind of the primary strategy. If you look at people who are flipping in, in the matter of days, probably not weeks these days, it's a matter of sort of hours and days. They will look primarily for NFTs that have a lot of hype and buzz. And and that usually flows from the creator, the NFTs having a large sort of social media following. And that would be kind of my sort of TLDR version of the investment worthiness of the NFTs. Right. So uh, then I guess the question is, are NFTs really just a vehicle for flipping? In any investment class, there are always investors of all sorts of time frames, right? Even if you look at the bluest of blue chip stocks, right, which is an investment class everyone is is aware of, you'll have people playing intraday sort of day trading, and then you'll have people who basically buy and never sell. And so it doesn't matter what investment class you have, you'll have people of all sorts of time frames sort of in that investment class. And NFTs is no different. So I would say like these days, there's definitely a lot of short-term speculation in NFTs. And the reason for that is because A, a lot of the people in NFTs right now 
are attracted by the potential for sort of short-term profits. And, and so they come in with that kind of mindset. And two, I would say like a lot of people are just not very comfortable holding NFTs for a long time because things like what NFTs are investment worthy, this kind of question is um, doesn't really have a lot of consensus around it. Right? Different people have different opinions and a lot of people are not very confident of, of which opinions to hold. So mm-hmm. absence that kind of knowledge, that kind of um, you know consensus opinion, uh, a lot of people are just kind of you know flipping them because they, they're not sure which NFTs they want to hold for the long term. Right. One last question on this. How do you mm-hmm. account for the fact that CryptoPunk succeeded while CryptoKitties failed? The reason why CryptoKitties, I wouldn't call them failed, right? They're still pretty significant, but I would say like their historical significance probably has waned. And I would say is that, you know, their influence on the NFT, on the broader cultural and NFT market, you know, over time. So for example, you know, CryptoKitties as a breeding sort of mechanic, uh, because it was very novel at the time, a lot of people sort of used it. But over time, if you look at all the other NFT games that came out, you know, its influence on other you know, projects, other games hasn't been that much, right? Not many people have actually like copied them or even taken a lot of from their kind of decision making in that sense. So in that sense, if you look at why something has, you know, value, a lot of times it's because they have a lot of influence over sort of future projects. And, and in that sense, CryptoPunks has done much better than CryptoKitties because, you know, the CryptoPunks as being like the original PFP project, these days, I would say the largest segment in the NFT market are PFP projects. So everything is essentially a descendant of that original CryptoPunks project. And then also, you know, a lot of the things that they had inside the project, which is, for example, a category of traits, um, you know, ranging from sort of rarest to, to more common, like this kind of characteristic is now, you know, almost a de rigueur sort of requirement in a NFT project these days. And all, all of these factors, right, which came about, uh, you know, innovated by CryptoPunks have now sort of influenced future sort of projects in a really, really massive way. And, and the amount of cultural influence it has basically, I think, determines um, the amount of value that it has. You spent some years writing about contemporary art market. Are there lessons to be drawn from contemporary market when, you know, when we go into the NFT world? That's a great question. I get it quite a lot. And I think that it is a very useful counterpoint. There are certain things that maybe are particularly, I guess, resonant with the contemporary art market. There's certain things like price fix inclusion, pumping and dumping. I think these are phenomena that are familiar to observers of the traditional art market. Um, but at the same time, it's very different because like, the way in which information, intel, intel is disseminated, you know, it happens virtually entirely online, on Twitter, Discord. And also like, because it, this kind of NFT boom coincided with the COVID pandemic, right? So in the past two years, you know, the art world is very dependent on kind of like FaceTime and, you know, in real life networking. Although, of course, you know, dealers have been selling art online or through PDS for many, many years now, actually. So th- there are some parallels as well, I think. But I think for me, it's useful to think about it, not really as an extension of the art market, but really a market that has its own kind of unique um, mechanisms, its own momentum, its own tempo, whatever you want to call it. But I think maybe one of the main things that is very familiar, would, would be familiar to art world observers, would be the fact that it is about this kind of very elite coterie of taste making and gatekeeping. 
So in the traditional world, as we know, the market can really be swayed by, you know, individual collectors or a very small group of, you know, highly elite, influential, say, New York collectors, the kinds that you see in the pages of our forum, uh, seen and heard, or Artnet, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, the, and these, these people are, are well-known and all the dealers know them. And they're courted because they know that, you know, if Steve Cohen or whatever, like is a collector or the Mugrabis of a certain artist, then that's going to get out as news and it's going to attract many, many other collectors in their wake. In crypto NFT art, it's the same thing. Of course, a lot of these people are pseudonymous, but they're known by their handles on Twitter and so on. And so, you know, the, the people look out for the same things. Sorry, the same people. They look out for the same tastemakers that they know are going to move the needle, going to shift the market. And yeah, so that dynamic, I think, is very similar. The one thing I think is a bit interesting, that's a bit of a twist, is that we all know that, you know, the, the wallets that hold NFTs have a public address that can be basically looked up by anyone, right? You can go on OpenSea. If you know the address, you can see what's in the collection. So that transparency, I feel, has really changed the game. For example, as Sabertooth was mentioning about how to assess the value or the investment worthiness of an NFT, if you know, and now it's much easier, because previously you would have to be an insider to know what was in the collection of such and such a collector. Mm-hmm. Now you can go to your wallet and you know what they're called. And then you can compare and go to other wallets and look at what, you know, people who've bought X, they also hold Y and they also hold Z and so on. So you can draw this whole network of like correlations and kind of like adjacent purchases that will give you a lot of like insight into what the whales or the very influential collectors are holding. And I think that has really um, made it a very, you know, interesting game for anyone with the time and information to to do their DD, to do their homework and find out who is holding what and how that is, is basically constructing, you know, our sense of what's valuable and what's, um, what's in demand, basically. Right. As an art critic, what do you think of the art? There's not been much consensus of what actually we're referring to when we call something NFT art, right? So at one level, um, it's really just the technology or the mechanism. So non-fungible tokens. You have the, the kind of art that uh, a lot of people refer to as just a you know, NFT pointing to the art. And what that means is that the art is made elsewhere. It, it's not, it's not um, for example, like you can just make a painting or a sculpture and then you mint a token that verifies your ownership of that piece of art. So there's a physical work and then there's the token that points to it. And so it's two different things, right? And then there's the art that is, for example, entirely uh, on-chain. And by that, it means that, for example, the art is actually in the smart contract that lives on the blockchain. It actually, it's coded in a way that, for example, with the genre that we call generative art, it yields uh, you know, an abstract kind of like piece of work that is different for each token. So you have a unique piece of work. The code generates some kind of like tessellated pattern and things like that. So that's like more what is known in the space sometimes as medium native, by which, you know, it's, it's a familiar term, right? For example, in the contemporary art world, we talk about things like uh, abstract expressionism. We have, you know, the, the painting that was done in New York in the 50s and 60s, for example, that was all about flatness. It's all about 
you know, painting as painting as like like basically looking at the, what what is unique to a painting. So it's it's flat, it's two dimensional, it's the medium of paint, and so a lot of artists were very attentive to the specific kind of like uh, attributes of the medium they work with. Mm-hmm. So in this case, paint. And so likewise, we have artists that are working with NFT art with the blockchain, whose whose work is really about the blockchain. It's about NFTs. It's about it's about non fungible tokens. It's about this medium that is quite specific to our time. So that class of art is also NFT art. And on the other hand, CryptoKitties and CryptoPunks are also called NFT art. So that leaves us basically kind of quite confused. I think the the that general public is probably rather confused because there's 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 quite a lot of stuff that we call NFTR and they're very, very, very different. So that's one of the things to get out of the way before I answer the question, which is the <laughs> definition thing, the terminology thing. Now, as for the judgment of what is art and what I, well, what I might consider like good um, NFT art, I think, again, that depends on whether you believe that it's only the NFT kind of media native, blockchain specific, I would say maybe more formalistic art that, that addresses those attributes. If you think that that is going to be more significant, historically speaking, in, say, 10 years, then, yeah, that's one way to look at it. I personally think that we're going to come out and it will be things like CryptoPunks that while they're not medium native, you know, they're, they're basically avatars, different traits, different rarities. It's a very kind of more like collectible project, as we call it. But it was culturally significant, as Sabretooth has outlined. It was came at a moment where um, these more medium-native concerns were not really on the radar. But I think that on hindsight, and we're only five years out, it was a very kind of era or epoch-defining project. And so that, like CryptoPunks is not by any stretch a medium-native project in that sense. But I think that it is also significant. So... I guess I have and have not answered a question, but I think that the multiple <laughs> or assessing value. Okay, uh, uh, well, one last small thing. Uh, if we were to put CryptoPunks on a canvas and sell it as a painting, do you think it would be worth buying? Uh, hold on, hold on. Let, let, let me let, let me take this because you guys are talking a lot about CryptoPunks. <laughs> so so let, let me jump in here. I have a strong opinion that that actually like judging sort of NFT projects or NFT art by the standards of sort of art history, contemporary art history, it's kind of like judging a movie by a screenshot, right? Sure. And I'll use CryptoPunks as an example. You know, we, we had this conversation with, I think, Michael Jepson, and, and he kind of said, look, CryptoPunks, it's, it's nothing. Like, it's, it, Andy Warhol did this in the 1960s, right? And I would say, like, the reason why we get opinions like this, and, and, and I think that your question was, you know, if you put CryptoPunks on a painting, would anyone buy it, right? is to say that CryptoPunks, the visual representation of CryptoPunks, right? Which is, you know, this sort of pixelated 8-bit image that you see is like a screenshot of a movie, Mm -hmm. right? And you can't really evaluate it by that screenshot because by that screenshot, obviously it's worth nothing, right? But for example, you have to understand that CryptoPunks is an NFT smart contract. And the NFT smart contract contains a marketplace that has permissionless bidding, buying, and selling embed into the marketplace itself. So if you look at the project, all these sort of cute little 8-bit pictures are merely manifestations of an ownership of a smart contract that has an internalized 
marketplace built into the smart contract itself, right? And so I would say if you want to evaluate the artistic merits of CryptoPunks, you can't do that unless you actually look at the code and look at the, and understand the technical underpinnings of this project. And that merely examining the aesthetics of a particular picture is you're not really getting to to what actually it is. And and so another sort of thing on the significance of this is that these days, you know, every single NFT that's ever been created is traded on OpenSea or other NFT marketplaces, except CryptoPunks. CryptoPunks is traded in its own smart contract because when it came out, when CryptoPunks came out, there was no OpenSea, there was no marketplaces. So they had to basically build a marketplace into the smart contract for the collectors to trade amongst themselves. So, so when you examine, I guess, from a critical perspective, uh, CryptoPunks, like that has to be included as part of the examination. Okay, what yardsticks then do you use for judging projects that you might be interested in? I think when you, when you look at a project for the first time, you basically can only determine one thing, right? Is this thing novel or is it a derivative, right? And so derivative projects probably make up you know, 95% of all projects, right? Where Mm -hmm. they're just doing something that someone else has done, maybe with a little twist and they're really trying to do it kind of better. Most of the time they kind of fold them up. They They don't really do things better than the original project. Sometimes they do. Sometimes the derivative project does better than the original project. So that's one factor. It's difficult, I think, for a derivative project to kind of hold value in the long term. And then the other thing is 5% of the time you have something that's kind of novel, right? Something that you haven't seen before. Now, just because something's novel doesn't mean that it's innovative because something can be novel and no one could give a shit, basically. No one cares. (laughs) And then it could kind of fall into obscurity and, you know, never to be heard from again. Or it could be innovative where it just triggers an entirely new sort of cultural awareness, new narrative, new, new something. And usually that whether something is novel or innovative can only be determined by time. It, you can't really tell um, mm-hmm. in the, in, at the start. And so I would say those innovative projects are the ones that are going to hold kind of value long-term. So in a sense, it's also kind of similar to contemporary art in that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Kizu, in that you, you, you do look for innovations. You do look for what moves the needle. I'm not sure how, like proportionally, how much importance to assign to... Let's, let's just call it on one hand, the aesthetic slash innovation, kind of the more, so things that pertain to the work itself, right? So whether it's the actual artistic skill or the, you know, kind of dominant aesthetic that's very popular or kind of like in demand at the moment. And then on the other hand, the kind of like all the other surrounding social contexts. So whether that's like what other whales are holding it, what other prominent collectors are also holding the project, who's talking about it on Twitter and, and how important or prominent they are. I think that balance is always key. I think in, there's always, with collecting as a pursuit, whether it's traditional art or NFCs or anything, collectibles even, I think there's always a sense, it's very individual, right? I think the, the individual collector has to assign a certain proportion of importance or you know to the, whether he or she actually likes the project, like resonates with the, the kind of vision or the, the kind of style. And then of course you can't be entirely ignorant of the what the, the wider market thinks of it. Uh, whether that's, you know, whether it flies in the face of your own personal preference or not. I feel like 
overall, you know, given the age that we're in, uh, I think the balance is slightly towards the the clout and the social signaling for sure. Um, if you look at the majority of the projects that are not just the most famous ones, but the ones that are pretty, you know, have held their value, are in demand, are talked about, I think they tend to be the ones that have a lot of social and like momentum and, and endorsement behind them. And by that, I mean, not just, you know, who who else and what other rappers are, are buying into it. But I mean, if you look at, if you spend any time, I think on, on Twitter, crypto Twitter or Discord, I think you get a sense of what the town square is saying, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think in contemporary art, right, I think we do have that. We have, for example, the art media, which is a very, plays a very important role in terms of you know, basically generating a discourse around art, where it's a more art historical or critical one or a market-based one where it's talk, you know, talk about, you talk about auctions, people, you know, want to see, you know, what sold at Christie's spring auction, evening sale, all of that. I think that is important. It's also very cultural. It's not just about prices. It's about like, oh, Chinese collectors, are they back in force, you know, um, because there was a time when they kind of fell off the radar or, you know, what, how's the Chinese economy doing? And, and accordingly, are the Chinese collectors buying? So it's, it's, it's cultural, it's socioeconomic, it's all of that. In crypto NFT art, we don't have that. It's a big missing part. I think that's a very essential difference. We don't have a so-called legitimized art media, whether it's websites, magazines, or whatever. It's things like our podcast, uh, Twitter and Discord. It's, it's much more informal. It's socials, right? It's all the social media platforms. The other thing that's missing is the institutional background. We don't yet have a crypto NFT museum scene. There are, of course, you know, collectors that are, we've all heard about, for example, Medikoven, who basically won the bid for the Beeple uh, work, 69 million, right? And then he promptly went on to announce that he was going to build a museum in the metaverse to display that. So there, there's like the beginnings of initiatives to create a institutional, of course, I use that term very loosely because is an art museum in the metaverse really an institutional, going to be the, the beginning of an institutional um, base that is going to confer legitimacy and endorse what will be canonical NFT art? I really don't know like it's, it's something that's very work in progress at the moment i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that these are initiatives um sure they're, they're funded by you know private capital oftentimes they are they, they don't really have the kind of wide consensus that you see in the contemporary art scene where you you do need for example to become successful you do need institutional museum support you do need galleries that are respected and that support that artist through his or her career you do need you know like for example to have shown at the prominent uh, festivals biennales triennales things like that and then of course you have your you know base of private collectors who support you so the tldr there is that the power dynamics are quite lopsided or skewed in the crypto nft art space for better or worse it's just the nature of how that space has developed. And of course, a lot of that has to do with um, the newly minted, pardon the pun, crypto rich that, you know, is pouring that, is transferring that clout or capital into um, trophies that, you know, are benefits that they collect. So yeah, there's a lot there that is somewhat 
reminiscent of how um, the wealthy class is trying to flaunt their cultural capital. And then there's a lot that in terms of dynamics and, and the, the structure of the, the market, as well as the ways in which the art is displayed or you know, kind of exhibited, that is very different from the contemporary art scene. Wow. <laughs> it gets more and more fascinating by the minute. <laughs> Thank you for delineating it. I mean, I, I realize my questions are one-on-one because I, I'm not a I'm not a crypto journalist, right? I, I, I write on a variety of things. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. Thank you for explaining all that to me. Sabretooth, you're a professional collector. Are there certain websites and tools that you personally use to pick interesting projects? Um, no. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> He just um, relies on his gut instinct. No, no, <laughs> in, in a sense, like I don't really use Twitter in a sense because basically I just I just don't think the best investments are made with the crowd, essentially. But so I, I kind of look at them, you know, for, for what's happening, but you know, I don't really use them as an as an indicator because I don't really like flip. I just don't have the time to sit in front of the computer sort of 24 hours a day to, to, to flip stuff that, that is required if you want to flip. And all the other websites are basically too slow essentially. So the, I think the only thing that is required for me is basically the blockchain itself. Everyone can lie on, on Twitter or on websites. You know, I got this, I got that. What can't lie is basically what's on the blockchain, right? <laughs> who owns what, who paid what price for what is kind of there in black and white. And it doesn't matter what you say, it's kind of there in black and white. So I would say that's basically the most important tool for any collector, basically, which is to see what what is on the blockchain and what is in black and white rather than what people say. Right, right. So how, for the record, how many do you have? How many NFTs do you have? I mean, it's, it's in the thousands. I, I, don't really have an exact, I don't really have an exact number. If you go to my Twitter page, I link to my sort of Tezos collection, which is in the, in the thousands as well, I think. So that's kind of my public mm-hmm. NFTs. Could I also ask, why don't you sell? I sell sometimes. Uh, okay. Of course, I sell sometimes, um, but I would say, you don't flip. yeah, like I don't flip because like in order to be a good flipper, you basically need like, it's like, it's like if you ask someone who invests in stocks, like, why don't you day trade? Right. And the reason is in order to be a good day trader, you just need to spend a fuck ton of time on it. One, I don't want to spend my time on that. I I do a lot of projects. I'm kind of like a builder, entrepreneur um, in, in in my life. So, so I kind of use my time to that. I just I, I just don't spend my time on, on kind of flipping. And the second thing is, I actually don't think it's that profitable to flip, to kind of get the really, really high returns. Like if you, for example, in, in stocks, right? If you compare people who, you know, make long-term bets on, you know, good and, and, and high growth stocks versus people who day trade, you'll find that the day traders get outperformed like 100% of the time, essentially. Like you won't really find like people who've made a huge amount of money day trading, essentially. So yeah, so for both those reasons. Wow. Well, are there uh, any particular projects or assets or collectives that you recommend? Yes, there is. So, you know, we already talked about CryptoPunks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of one. Uh, a project that I'm very high on is a, is a project called Promergence. So this is um, a pretty kind of underlooked kind of project on Ethereum. It's in the generative art space. And I see it as kind of very innovative. And I have, I think that it is going to be similar to a CryptoPunks versus CryptoKitty situation where, you know, this project basically came out in the shadows of Artblocks, which is, I think, a very, very um, hyped kind of project where people were paying all sorts of 
um, money for for art blocks, sort of generative art pieces. But if you kind of look at the mechanics and the code <laughs> of kind of these two projects, I find Promergence itself much more sort of innovative. And I mean, this is kind of crystal ball gazing. I think in time, generative projects will look more like Promergence than they will look like art blocks in the future. So right. yeah, that's kind of my my two kind of picks. You know, if we're doing financial advice. <laughs> what about you, Kizu? Actually, I wanna kind of semi-shell something because I actually <laughs> am an advisor to a project that dropped last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe I well, I'll, I'll just say it, and then I I, I wouldn't I, I'll kind of because it's conflict kind of like interest, right? So, but um, it's a you project. Plug it. That's not an issue. <laughs> So anyway, it's, it's a project called Bitbullies. It's actually uh, a team, mostly New York based, that I've been working on with for other crypto startups. It's kind of like a fitness themed project um, that we got Jake Paul to kind of endorse. So it's it's a collection of I guess like more like there's a there's a strong boxing theme because of Jake Paul, but there's also like various kind of athlete figures that you know. And um, I think maybe the the key thing or one of the things that was the selling point was that we paid a lot of attention to the longer term community building. And so you know, oftentimes a lot of projects they generate a lot of hype, and you know whether fake or not, right? Before the drop, and then they sell out, and then you never really kind of know how the community is going to evolve from there. And also like what kind of long-term uh, returns are available to those who bought into the project. Famously, you know, like the CryptoPunks Discord, for example, is quite uh, inactive. And a lot of the value of the project is like in spite of the fact that, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, Discord, you can go in and hang out there and you can find out if the the creators as well as the holders are in it for the long run. And by that, does that mean that, you know, they're engaged on a daily basis? Is there a lively chat? But I think that's only one of the indicators. A lot of the other things that are really, you know, essential to the, the kind of long-term health of the project have to do with, for example, is there, do they have their own token that, you know, returns some other value to the, the shareholders, the, the people who hold the, the project? There are other things that we do, for example, that uh, involve creating a community offline, so in New York, for example, we are planning to have uh, in real life events. Also, we have a, a mechanism by which you can stake our own token, which is called Lunch. And it uses basically Uniswap, which is one of the decentralized exchanges that most, one of the biggest decentralized exchanges, where basically you can loan tokens to earn a yield. And this is like one of the other things that has been very popular in the crypto space where people can earn a yield on their crypto without having to cash out into fiat, for example, USD, for example. So yeah, that's those are the things that we paid some attention to in terms of the tokenomics of the project. So that's over and above the, the actual token. There are other elements that are available to holders of the project. That's my little thing. And then I would say to answer the question, I would still really look at the kind of larger social context surrounding a project when deciding if it's something not just like personally to buy into, but to to make a prediction about whether that project is going to be significant. I still think, as Sabertooth mentioned, like one of the most effective ways to assess that is not hang on Twitter, although that helps if you have the time, 
But the time efficient thing to do is to look at wallets, because as he's mentioned, like it's it's totally it's a totally transparent way of accessing a data set that really you know there's there's no um, there's no waffling around it. But it sounds like you have to look at a lot of wallets, <laughs> like maybe a hundred wallets before you decide what's being held long term, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, essentially, it's not. There are tools out there that can aggregate this kind of wallet data, essentially, ah. and so you know, so you don't have to, you don't have to go through them one by one, sure. in a sense. What, what yeah. tools could you name those tools? Uh, the most well-known tool is a tool called Nansen Analytics. Um, they're actually based in Singapore, <laughs> believe ah. it or not. But the founders are not Singaporean, but they're based in Singapore. But they're quite quite expensive. I think their tools cost something in the range of like twenty five thousand dollars a year. US dollars a year. And so they, they, you know, surface all kinds of things. I mean, there are other tools out there. For example, there's um there's a tool called um IC, I-C-Y dot tools, um, which also sort of mm-hmm. gives you gives you wallet data. Um, there's there's another tool called um called um, Moby. Um so Moby.gg, um M-O-B-Y dot G-G. Uh-huh. Um so that also gives you kind of that wallet data. And and I mean those are those are kind of cheaper. So they're in the range of kind of hundreds of hundreds of USD to, to access them. So, uh, but the, I mean, there are a lot of, t- and all these uh, tools are just servicing kind of public data because all this data is kind of public. So, yeah. right. Most of the projects that you've mentioned are also American projects. Have you seen any Singaporean or Southeast Asian or Asian NFT projects that have succeeded? There's been a few. For example, I think one of the more successful ones is. Um, is is a project called Irene Dow. So that's by uh, this Instagram influencer um, yeah. called called Irene Zhao. So she kind of went into sort of crypto and NFTs, and she just dropped an NFT project. And you know, it, it, it's because of the nature of the crypto space that its majority was men. So when an attractive woman kind of comes into the space, a lot of people turn into simp's. So. This, this whole kind of simp meme kind of took off. That project did quite well. There, there's another project that I like to kind of shout out in Southeast Asia. There's an Indonesian project by the name of, created by the name of Gozali Gozalu. So he's like a 20-year-old Indonesian guy who basically took a selfie of himself for like, I think three years straight. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then um, and then he basically put it on Polygon and he didn't have, he didn't like do any marketing at all. It was just such a, kind of like a weird and wonderful <laughs> project that the whole thing yeah. just took off by himself. But the thing is, he didn't actually make that much money. I think he only made it like a couple thousand dollars worth, but the collection itself uh, kind of sold for, you know, a huge amount of money. So yeah. all, all his collectors kind of made money, but I don't think he actually made that much money. I would have to say that if, if you want to take a, a general overview of the market or the space, the, the you know, the creators as it stands today, I would tend to agree that it's very Euro-American centric. My general observation has been that the artists that are not from the US or Europe have mostly been artists that work in whatever medium that they used to work in pre-NFTs and that they just found that by minting their work as an NFT, it's enabled them to access a market, a slightly different market but that their prices haven't really changed from that. So there, there's some kind of like, yes, the access is widened, but the value proposition has remained largely the same, if that makes sense. I think that there, there needs to be a plus alpha that where 
you know, main value and, and, and still counts. So if you look at, for example, artists that, contemporary artists that have ventured into the space over the last two years, obviously most famously people like Damon Hirst did a project. Takashi Murakami did a project with the Metaverse Studio Artifact, which has since sold to Nike, which was quite a big thing, almost like almost just, um, I think, a month after the drop. But there you see like, you know, these are artists that already have, of course, Murakami is, is not the best or most representative example as an Asian artist, so to speak, because he's, yeah. you know, he's already have, he already has a huge storied career, you know, prior to that. And he's only kind of like, Amplify that by partnering with a very um, hyped up, you know, metaverse um, creative studio. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is like the dynamics of the contemporary world have, in a sense, ported over to the space, NFT space, because people are still, a lot of artists are, are relying on an existing reputation. The Hearst project is, is a good example. Although I, I would say that Damien Hearst, the currency in and of itself was a you know, very uh, laudable project because of the way that you know, he took a style that he already established, the dot paintings, the, and, and then basically kind of slotted that quite neatly into the idea of a collectible series with rarity traits and things like that. So, yeah, I, I think that the Asian artists um, and, and more specifically in, in this region of the world are only just getting started. I think that, you know, because, you know, in the larger art scene, because Southeast Asian artists aren't quite off, you know, they don't have that same global cachet necessarily. I think you, you don't really expect them to, you know, have that global cachet in the NFT art space because it, it's, I think the dynamics of reputation and, and fame are, are largely the same. So that's why I think the most successful projects have not been uh, from this region. Well, uh, th- thank you for that. Thank you for this conversation. It's been amazing for me. I'm sure for you, you, you're used to talking to experts and learning something, but for me, I've learned a lot uh, in this conversation. So thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow. And give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising.